Genesis 42, verse 1. And keep in mind, we have half an hour to talk about God's word. And it's half an hour to combat all the stuff you hear throughout the week, all the stuff you see on TV, all the stuff that you see on the internet, all the stuff you hear from other people. So I want to challenge you to zero in right now. If someone starts talking to you to your side, if your phone starts ringing, um, ignore them, push them away. You don't have to physically push them, but just kind of ignore them and focus in on what God has for you tonight because we don't want to waste this time. We don't want to leave this place without really seeing what God has for us. So we're going to look at four chapters tonight, and I'm not going to read all verses. In this series, we've been going verse by verse every single week, and um, that's not really going to work for four chapters. So I don't know. Do y'all still use Cliff Notes? Okay, so Cliff Notes are like, a, a short version for people that are lazy and don't want to read. That's what we're going to do. We're going to do the, the, the cliff notes of Genesis 42 through 45. So I'm going to like read a couple of verses and then just like skip forward like 15 verses and explain it to you. And then I'll jump back in. So just kind of keep with me, um, kind of follow along with me. I'll tell you when I'm going to read straight out of scripture and when I'm just, uh, when I'm just summarizing. So we're going to start in 42. And what's happened is Joseph has risen to the king of Egypt status. His dream has been fulfilled. And a lot of us think, well, that's the end of the story. And I talked to some of you this past week that said, oh, the series is over, right? But it's not over because this is actually like the only the midway point of Joseph's story. He has a lot more to teach us through the rest of his life. And so we're going to start in verse 42. And it's actually going to shift the attention from Joseph to Joseph's family, to Jacob and his brothers who about 20 years ago, um, they tried to kill him, and then decided not to kill him, and then sold him into slavery. Um, Really nice family. We're going to kind of turn right back to them and see what's going on in their lives 20 years later. So we're going to start in 42, verse 1. Read along with me. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob is Joseph's dad, when he learned there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? What a a dad thing to say. Uh, Many of you have had your dad or your mom before say this to you. Uh, Hey, kids. Kids, what are you doing? Why are you just looking at each other? Go do something. Go outside and do something. Go do your homework. Do your chores. Do something. Stop just sitting there and doing nothing. And at this point, they're two years into the famine. Remember, they were going to have seven good years. And so we've skipped past that, and we've skipped two years into the famine. So we're nine years ahead of where we left off last week. Um, And so they're already feeling the effects of this famine. Verse 2, he continued, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. So go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. So the ten, brother, 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin. Keep in mind, Benjamin is um, Rachel's son, and he's Joseph's full brother. All the other brothers are like half-brothers from different moms, um, but they had the same mom. So like Benjamin was the other favorite besides Joseph. So he says, so it says in verse 4, Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Obviously, he didn't trust his kids. He sent his son away with him one time, and he never came back. So he's like, I'm not making that mistake again. I'm not going to send him with you. You guys go alone. He's staying home with me. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was still the governor of the land, the leader of the land, and the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Remember the dream? It's happening right here. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. He recognized them, but they don't recognize him. And he pretends to be a stranger, and he speaks harshly to them, saying, where do you come from? So this is where I'm going to summarize a little bit. So what he's going to do is he's going to accuse them of being spies. And they're going to say, no, 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 we're not spies. We're, We're good guys. We have our dad. We just need food. Our brother's at home. And when he speaks of the brother, or when they speak of the brother, Joseph, his like ears perk up, and he's like, 
they're talking about Benjamin. He must be alive still. They haven't done anything to him. They didn't kill him too or sell him into slavery as well. So what he says is, all right, if you want to prove to me you're not spies, I want you to bring your brother to me. And then he throws him in jail for three days to let him think about what they've done. This is like the timeout for throwing him into slavery. And then, um, and then he makes a deal with him after three days. He says, I'm going to keep one of your brothers. And he chooses Simeon. So Simeon was the lucky guy. He says, I'm going to keep him. And you guys go home. And when you bring back Benjamin, your story will be proved true. And then you can have Simeon back. Um, and then you can go on your merry way. So he sends him with food and he sends him home. We're going to pick up in verse 21. Same chapter, 21. So they say to one another, the brothers say, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. When he was in the pit, he pleaded and cried for us not to hurt him. We saw how distressed he was, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Now, Reuben was the one that tried to save the brother, but he wasn't willing to really step up and actually say, don't touch him. He was, he was just kind of like trying to sneak behind the brother's back and save Joseph's life, but it didn't really work out. So Reuben says, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? What a guy. What a, what, what a good guy. He's, he's playing, the, uh, playing the, the, the martyr situation here. He says, didn't I tell you not to hurt the boy, but you wouldn't listen? Typical brother here, blaming the other brothers. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. And they didn't realize that Joseph could actually understand them. And so what happens is uh, they're feeling guilty again for this thing that happened, keep in mind, 22 years ago. This is, this is kind of old news. These guys are grown up. They have kids of their own. They're like in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. They're old guys, but they're still feeling the guilt and shame of what they did. And so what they do is um, he, he takes Simeon, and, uh, and he gives them grain and money, and he sends them away. But he puts their money back into their bags. So they came with this silver to buy the grain. He puts it back into their bags without them knowing. Skip over to uh, 27 and 28. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to free or to get feed for his donkey. And he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank. And they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? Once again, they're feeling some guilt and their shame. And they're, and they're feeling like, gosh, what is going on. Like, why are we so cursed? It's because we messed with Joseph all these years ago. And so they get home. They tell Jacob the story. Jacob is, uh, is obviously angry because now they've lost another one of his sons, Simeon. And um, they realize that there's silver in all their bags. And they're like, we can't go back to this guy to get Simeon back. The only way we can go back is if you give us Benjamin. And Jacob's like, no, I told you, I'm not giving you Benjamin. I'm not going to let you take another one of my sons, and who knows what's going to happen to him. And so they just kind of sit tight. But then Reuben's like, okay, I got a plan, Dad. Um, I have two sons, your grandchildren, you know. Um, how about this? You send me with Benjamin. If I don't come back, you can kill my sons. And, and I bet his sons were like, oh, thanks, Dad. Like, thanks for putting us on the line. And, uh, and Jacob's like, why would I kill my grandsons because you lost my son? That's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And we're going to see, like, the brothers really aren't that smart. Like, they're, they're some simple guys. They're just, uh, they're not with it. But, um, so he refuses to tell, the, or to send Benjamin. And two years pass the whole time. Simeon's sitting in custody, sitting in jail. And he's like, thanks, brothers. Thanks for coming back and getting me. But finally, they need food. And they've run out of food two years later. And they say, well, now we've got to make the decision that we've been putting off, procrastinating for years. And so finally they convince their dad to send them back with Benjamin. And their dad says, okay, take extra silver, take extra gifts. We're going to just suck up to the king, and maybe, maybe he's going to have favor on us. 
So he sends them back, and we're going to skip ahead to 43, chapter 43, verse 16, verse 16 through 18. So they're going to get there, and it says, Joseph saw Benjamin with them, with the brothers. And he said to the servant of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. So uh, Joseph's plan has worked. He gets to see his brother, and he's going to have like a lunch. He's going to have a meal with his brothers. Um, so the man did as Joseph had told him, and he took the men, the brothers, to Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened. Once again, they're dealing with some guilt and shame. That's why they're always scared. They were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought, we were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. That, that's just like the dumbest thing ever. So you're going you're gonna to get beat up. You're going to get put, in, put into slavery. You're going to get put into prison. And they're worried about their donkeys. Like, that's, that's kind of a ridiculous, it's like you getting sentenced to life in prison and saying, yeah, but what about my iPhone? It's like, no, you're going to go to prison for the rest of your life. Like, this is a big deal. Like, brothers, like, stop worrying about the donkeys and worry about your lives. Like, your lives are at risk here. And so once again, they're, they're worried, they're scared. And so they have this meal together. And Joseph starts asking them about, their bro, about Benjamin. He gives him, like, extra food. He starts asking about um, their father and how he's doing, and, and, and they've kind of passed the test. He can tell that they, they, they've taken care of their brother. They haven't, um, they haven't treated him wrongly. Maybe they've kind of changed their ways over the years. So then he decides, okay, I'm going to send them home, but I'm going to do one more test. I'm going to put my silver cup. This was like a very important cup that he would use um, uh, to show his power and to show his royalty and, and, and to interpret dreams. It was kind of a sign of power. He says, I'm going to put that cup in the bag of Benjamin, who was the favorite son. And then I want to send my servant after them. So he sends them on their way. Off they go. They're excited. They got Simeon back. They got Benjamin. They got food. Everything's good in their mind. But the servant runs up behind them and he says, you evildoers, what have you done? And they're like, no, no, no. We didn't do anything wrong. I promise. And he says, I think you stole my, my master's cup. And they're like, no, you got the wrong guys. I promise you. We swear. If we, if we have your cup, we'll come be slaves for you. Another, another stupid uh, wager on their parts. And so he goes and he finds what they planted in Benjamin's bag and they find the cup and all the guys like tear their clothes and they're stricken with guilt because once again, they've messed up. Once again, their brother is gonna go into slavery and they didn't even mean him to. And so they all head back to the city. We're gonna skip ahead to 44 verse 16. 44 verse 16. So they get back, they fall down once again on their knees before Joseph, and this is what Judah says. Judah says, what can we say to my Lord? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? Because they hadn't done anything wrong this time. But then he says this, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. It's almost like he's saying, well, we're innocent of this, but we did some other stuff wrong. Like, we're guilty and shameful for this other thing we did years ago. But we are now, my Lord's slaves, we ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. And then Joseph is going to say, no, 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 guys. No, you guys go ahead. I'm just going to keep the one that committed the crime. I'm keeping Benjamin. Once again, he's testing his brother. So Judah goes on this, this rant, and he's like, okay, you can't do that. Our father will die. He, we, made, we promised that we'd bring back Benjamin. You can't keep Benjamin. Take me instead. Just take me, and I'll be a slave. And, and you can imagine the kind of the satisfaction of Joseph to see that this brother that sold him into slavery, that was willing to give him up, has now changed over the years and is willing to be a slave in the place of Benjamin. 
So we're going to skip ahead to the last chapter, 45, verse 1. And it says, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his servants, his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and the Pharaoh's household and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him. Why? Because they were terrified at his presence. Once again, another example, they're operating out of guilt and shame. They feel like, oh, this is it. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for all these years. We're going to finally get what's coming to us. He is coming, he has risen to power and we are going to get put into slavery. We are going to get our heads chopped off. We are done for. But then Joseph tells them, no, 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 no. That's not what's going to happen because God has made all this work out. God used what you guys did to put me in a position of leadership. And now I've been able to save Egypt, the surrounding lands, and save my own family. God has used it for good. And then Pharaoh hears, hey, hey, Joseph's family's here. Joseph's brothers are here. So uh, uh, what, what do you want to do about it? And Pharaoh says, well, go get all of his family. There were about 70 people in his family. I want to send them all these gifts, and I want them to come live in Egypt. I want them to come, and they don't even have to worry about their stuff. I'm going to give them the best of everything. I'm going to make them like royalty. And so this is where we're going to pick up at the very end, verse 25 of 45. Chapter 45, verse 25 through 28. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive in fact, he is the ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. Of course he wouldn't believe them. His understanding was that, Jacob was, or that Joseph was dead. And now they're saying he's a ruler in the most powerful nation around. So he doesn't believe them. But when, he told, when they told him everything, Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, I'm convinced. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So what we see from this story, and what we want to focus on is the guilt and the shame. These brothers are still feeling guilt and shame. And keep in mind, we're 22 years later. They've been living this, in this guilt and shame with this burden for 22 years, struggling with it. And um, another thing to realize is that every time something bad happened to them, they started blaming what they had done before. They started feeling this guilty conscience. So it wasn't just now. Imagine over the years, every time a kid got sick, oh, we shouldn't have done that to Joseph. Every time they tripped and stubbed their toe, oh my gosh, why did I do that to Joseph? Man, every time they lost money in a business deal, why did I do that to Joseph? Every time a donkey died because they loved their donkeys, oh, why did I do that to Joseph? Like, oh my gosh, like, I shouldn't have done that. We shouldn't have done that. They were living in this mistrust. Their dad didn't trust them. They were lying to their father for 22 years, telling them that Joseph had died, that they, that, that, that they had just seen him get killed by an animal. And so what we see from this is the first point in your notes, and it's not in there. I just want you to write it down. Guilt and shame will ruin your life. Guilt and shame will ruin your life. Write that down. Guilt and shame will ruin your life. As we've talked about being like a boss, um, we've talked about the ways to live our life like a boss, following after God. And one way we will not ever live an abundant, God-filled happy, joyful life is if we're covered in guilt and shame. These guys were living and running around with this burden of guilt and shame. Now, we need to be clear. They had done something wrong. They, they really did a bad thing. 
a really bad thing. They, they basically uh, killed their brother. That's essentially what they did in their minds. They basically just sold him away, gave him away because they were jealous of him. They did a bad thing. And they're just like us. We're just like the brothers. We've all done stuff that is bad, that is wrong. We've all sinned. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A lot of times as Christians, for those of you who know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we like to think that we're a little bit better than we used to be. We think, oh, well, you know, like, I used to be bad, but then Jesus saved me, and now everything's good. Like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I go to church. Like, I'm awesome. And, and a lot of times, I think we think we're a lot better than we are. We kind of get to this point where we're like professional Christians, and, you know, we don't need Jesus as much as we used to. Like, we still need him a little bit, but, but not so much. And, and we think we haven't really done that much wrong. But we've all messed up. But it's important to know that guilt does not come from God. Guilt and shame do not come from God. Guilt and shame do not come from God. If you get anything from this talk, I want you to know, guilt and shame do not come from God. In fact, he offers us grace from Jesus. Now, you might say, well, if God doesn't put guilt and shame on my life, then why do the bad things happen to me? When I do something wrong, why do I get punished? Why, why does this and that happen? I, I want to I draw a line, first of all, just a logical argument between consequences and guilt and shame. So, God can forgive you for something, and you still have to deal with the consequences of it. Let me give you an example. Um, many of us know people, maybe in our family or our friends, um, that have dealt with uh, being an alcoholic. And, and we've seen the effects uh, of being an alcoholic on their lives. So what may happen is, um, you know, they spend day after day drinking, getting drunk, going to, going to places and, and just imbibing in alcohol until they can't stand up straight, until they can't make decisions for themselves. And the short-term consequences are that they make bad decisions. The short-term consequences are that they get sick. The short-term consequences are they hurt other people. Now, Jesus, through Jesus, if they are a Christian, they are forgiven for that sin, but they still have to deal with the consequences, right? They still have to deal with the consequences. The long-term, uh, the long-term deal of, of alcoholism is that, um, you know, it hurts your body, it hurts your liver, it hurts your organs. Now, those are consequences. If someone drinks for 20 years, Jesus has forgiven them if they know him as their Lord and Savior, but the consequences still remain. They've poisoned their body for so long that something might happen. They might get sick. They might have to deal with those things. Maybe a, 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 less, a less serious version of that would be um, some, of, some of the guys in, in this world. And this isn't just in, in, in America or in Jacksonville Beach. This is everywhere. But some of you guys, um, some of you guys go after girls, right? And you, and you flirt with girls and you tell them you're great and you hook up with them and then you text them and you text somebody else and then you cheat on one and you go to the other and then you Snapchat one and you go to the other and you say, send me this and send me that and all this junk. And then, come on, I know y'all do it, and the girls, I know the girls know that the guys do it, right? And so, so we do these things, these guys do these things, and they may be in Christ forgiven, right? Jesus has forgiven them for their sleaziness. Jesus has forgiven them for the way they treat these girls. But that doesn't end the consequences, because girls talk, right, girls? Right? Girls talk, and you can get away with it once, and you can get away with it twice. This is like a mini-sermon. You can get away with it three or four times, but eventually... You're going to get a reputation, and you're going to go to a girl, and you're going to say, hey, I like you, and she's going to say, just go away. Like, I don't want to talk to you. You're like a scumbag because my friend told my friend told my friend, and I know what you did to her, and I know what you did to her, and I know what you did to her, and you did that and did that, and I, I want nothing to do with you. And you're like, oh, but, you know, I'm a Christian now. Like, Jesus forgave me. And she's like, yeah, but you're a jerk. Like, I don't care what Jesus thinks about you. You're a jerk. And those are consequences, right? You're forgiven, 
but you still have a reputation. And it takes a long time to get rid of that reputation. Consequences are different than guilt and shame. Let me show you a verse in John 3.17. Everybody knows John 3.16. But John 3.17 is right after. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to, what's that next word? Condemn the world, but to save the world through him. There is no condemnation in Jesus. There is no guilt and shame in Jesus. He did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. Show me the next verse. Romans 8, 1 and 2. It says, therefore, there is no, now no There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. These are just two of many verses that say there is no condemnation in Christ. You are forgiven in Christ. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you will do, what you've done to this person, what they think of you, what your reputation is. Jesus has forgiven you. Jesus has forgiven you. And so you might say, so so why do I feel so guilty? Why do I feel so bad about myself? Why, why, why do I just keep feeling like I'm, 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 I'm worthless and, and, I, and I can't do anything right and I'm never going to get any better? Why do I feel bad when I go to church or when I read scripture or when I pray? We need, to, we need to, at this point, draw the line between conviction and guilt. So on your notes, you have a, a line that says conviction and a line that says guilt. And I'm going to tell you some things about conviction versus guilt and show you how they're different. Because conviction comes from God. Conviction comes from God, but guilt comes from Satan. Remember, there is now no condemnation. There is no guilt. There is no shame that is in Christ Jesus. So where does the guilt come from? Where does the condemnation come from? It comes from Satan. The conviction is sent by God to turn us away from sin, and the guilt is sent by Satan to push us away from God. The next thing. Conviction makes us want to change. Conviction makes us want to change. This is what happens. We do something, and we realize from conviction from God that we shouldn't do it. It doesn't make us feel right. We don't like it. We don't like the results. Uh, Paul talked about there are things that I don't want to do, but I do anyway because I'm just confused. I have this like sinful nature, and we need conviction to turn us away from it. So conviction helps us change, helps us grow. Guilt makes us think we can't change. Guilt makes us think we can't change. Next thing. Conviction leads to life. Conviction leads to life. Jesus is in the the life-giving business, not in the death-giving business. That's why he rose from the dead. He is all about life and not death. But guilt leads to despair. Guilt leads to despair. It makes you think that you can never have hope. It makes you think that you can never get out of the, uh, of the situation you're in, out of the sin that you're in. Satan uses that to lead us into despair. The next thing, conviction makes us look to Jesus. It makes us look up and say, I need a Savior that loves me. I need a Savior that can change me. I need a Savior because I'm messed up. I can't make myself perfect. But guilt makes you look to yourself. You look down and all you got is yourself. All you've got is yourself to blame. I can't change. Well, what am I going to do? And then you try this program. This is why we see on TV all the time. Self-help programs. We see five ways to have a better relationship. Six ways to go to your best college. Ten ways to have a better, uh, a better career. Uh, seven ways to be healthier and happier every day. Because it's self-help. We're all about self-help in the world. And guilt makes you think, I need to fix this myself. 
But we know from Scripture that's impossible. We know that we can't just become perfect all of a sudden. Here's the last thing. Conviction is a blessing, and guilt is a burden. We saw these brothers that were not feeling blessed, but they were feeling burdened. And the nature of their relationship with Joseph was brokenness and judgment. They came to Joseph expecting to be judged and killed. But Joseph was coming at it from a different angle. He was like, look, guys, God has made this work out. I want to forgive you. And we asked this question last semester. I want you to ask it to yourself again. Are you dealing with God as a judge or a savior? Are you dealing with God as a judge or a savior? Are you looking at God, whether you're a Christian or not, are you looking at God as somebody that wants to get you and, and punish you and destroy you for what you've done? Or are you looking at him as a savior who wants to forgive you and give you grace and change you and bring you into a greater relationship with him? Here's the last thing in your notes. Jesus gives us peace and forgiveness, not guilt and shame. Jesus gives us peace and forgiveness, not guilt and shame. Let me show you in Romans 5.1 why we, why we think this thing about, um, about how he gives us peace and forgiveness. Do we have that one? Okay. Romans 5.1, I'll, I'll open up to it real quick. You don't have to turn there. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus gives us peace and forgiveness, not guilt and shame. Uh, the band can go ahead and come back up. We're going we're gonna to finish up here. Um, and I'm going to close with this, with this story out of Luke. And you don't have to turn there. It's Luke uh, 7, 36 through 50. And many of you know the story. You've heard the story. Uh, Jesus gets invited to um, this, uh, this Pharisee's house, this teacher of the law. He gets invited for this nice dinner. And he says, okay, I'll come over. And as he's there, this, uh, this woman that's called a sinner in the Bible comes up um, to him. And, and she is crying. You can see a woman full of guilt and shame. And she comes up to him and she starts crying and she uses her, her tears to wipe his feet and to clean his feet. Then she uses her, uh, her hair to dry his feet. And then she takes out this perfume, this, this oil that was um, probably all of her life savings. One of the most important things that she had. And she uses it to anoint his feet. And the Pharisees look at this and they say, if only he knew. If only he knew that that woman was a whore. If only he knew that that woman has done so many bad things that she is worthless. If only he knew how guilty she was. If only he knew how much shame she has brought to our community. If only she knew. If only he knew who was touching him. And so he tells them this parable about forgiveness. And and, and he asks, well, who who would be more grateful for forgiveness? Someone who was forgiven a million dollars or someone who was forgiven 50 bucks? And the Pharisee says, well, uh, of course it'd be the person that got forgiven a million dollars. Like, that's more. They would be more excited. And he said, it's the same thing with her. He says, therefore I tell you, her many sins, he recognizes she has sin. We all have sin. Her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
Jesus gives forgiveness, not guilt and shame. He continues, um, the guests begin to say to themselves, who is this man who forgives sins? And in the last verse, Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you, not your works, not what you've done, not that you've been to church a lot or that you've been on mission trips, that you're getting better or that you're not doing as bad with your sin or that you're starting to manage things a little bit better or you're going to more Bible studies or you're not smoking weed anymore or you're not drinking anymore. Like He doesn't say those things. She hasn't improved her life at all. He just says this, your faith has saved you. And then he ends with these three words, go in peace. Go in peace. Funny, in that situation, he gives the exact same two words we're talking about. He gives us peace and forgiveness, not guilt and shame. So we're going to close as we close. Uh, most weeks, we give an opportunity for you guys to uh, give your life over to Christ, to, to, as, you, as you might say, to become a Christian. And all it means is that you surrender your life to Christ. That you say, I, I, I don't want to be full of guilt and shame. I don't want to be worried about trying to be better or trying to improve anymore. I want salvation. I want grace. I want forgiveness. These, these men in this story were just saying, she's full of sin. She deserves guilt and shame. And that's what they did. That's what they did. That's what the world does. They just cast it on you. They throw it on you. They say, oh, it's okay to do that stuff. But then everyone's, uh, you know, when you get pregnant, well, well now you're a slut. Oh, it's a, it, we'll, we'll tell you to have sex all the time, but as soon as something bad happens, we're going to condemn you. Oh, drugs are cool. We're going to talk all about it on media. We're going to have it on shows. But as soon as you become addicted... You're a fool. You're guilty. You're shameful. Yeah, work your way up to the top, you know? Do whatever you need to do. Push people out of the way. But then when you break people's hearts and you, and you mess with people, they all say, man, what a trash heap that guy is because all he cares about is himself. All he cares about is getting ahead of us. All he cares about is hurting people so he can get what he wants. So we have an opportunity here to pray for forgiveness to pray for salvation. So everybody bow your heads, close your eyes. And I just want to give you an opportunity. If you've never given your life to Christ, never given your life to Christ, never surrendered your life over to him, never prayed a prayer of salvation, I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Romans says, uh, if, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. You surrender your life over to Christ and to what he did for us on the cross. Get rid of the guilt and condemnation, and you turn to someone who has grace and forgiveness for you. So, with everybody's head bowed and eye closed, I want to give you this opportunity to pray this prayer. And uh, if you want to pray this prayer, I just want you on the count of three to raise your hand. And the reason we do this is because I want you to remember. I don't want you to have a doubt in your mind. I want you to remember on uh, February 28th when you raised your hand in the air saying, Yes to Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I want you to remember that. So on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand and just pray this prayer silently with me. One, Jesus loves you. Two, you are forgiven. There is no guilt or condemnation. Three, raise your hand. Just shoot your hand up. No one's looking. Raise your hand and keep it up. Pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I'm yours. I know I need a savior. I know I've messed up and I'm tired of guilt and shame. I want peace 
and I want grace. Lord, forgive me what I've done. I surrender my life over to you and to your death and resurrection on the cross. Come be the Lord of my life in your name. Amen.